You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Ruth Flegman. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB News speaks with Executive Director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, Nick Voiles, about addiction and recovery and how to confront the stigmas associated with them. More in today's feature report. Also coming up, commissioners discuss the remapping of the six Bloomington City Council districts in the latest Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission meeting. That's coming up in your local headlines. During the Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission meeting on August 22nd, Commissioner Amanda Sheraton presented a consideration for a proposed map of the six Bloomington City Council districts labeled Commissioner Map 10. My map has a much probably lower compactness score than what some of the others did. I'm kind of assuming that many or most of the maps that were submitted would be legal after reading. Um, they had something about the, the compactness and uh, I guess what it seemed to be is where there is like a a plurality, you know, of a minority community that might change the result of an election or a community of interest, whether that's minority or not. Um, what I'm assuming with the neighborhood associations is that within politics, it may actually be that the way people vote is more split up based on homeowners versus renters, people that have earned income versus unearned, things like that. So it's possible, say, that you were in one of these neighborhoods, and, and ideally they should be all you know, concentrated together, you know, uh, but even if they are not, I'm kind of thinking that they would vote uh, similar with other homeowners as it, like, that that would be the main dividing point as opposed to which association. Another commissioner expressed concern about the continuity of neighborhoods in City Council District B6. Commissioner Sheridan responded. What happened there is that in order to preserve, like, in the original materials, um, one of the things that you could possibly do with this would be to try to keep as many people at the same as possible, like having as few voters change districts mm-hmm. as possible. So that was what I did try to do with my two maps. Mm-hmm. Although if you wanted to make a larger change, some of the other maps are more where it's very, very compact and doesn't really have that feature. But I had to expand what was a more central district and expand it outward, I think. So that's how it got like that. During public comment, Former city clerk Regina Moore said she had concerns a district contained neighborhoods that did not have much in common with each other. She outlined parts of the district map that are separated by 3rd Street and advocated that they are not grouped together. When I look at the city of Bloomington, I see a structure, meaning basically 3rd Street, that divides the city more than and that structure, because of the, the nature of the road, really divides um, divides the city. And to include a neighborhood 
or group that would span up and down or north and south of Third Street is, to me, not paying too much attention to cities or communities of interest or neighborhoods. Um, so I would say almost the same thing about the city north to south um, along a dividing line between College and Walnut, although that's not as um, significant in this map. I think you've pretty much got that part of it right. The objection to me is I see the yellow district, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I don't know what number it is, and I see it spanning from High Street way over to the west side of the city. That particular district is maybe three or four distinct parts to it, distinct neighborhoods to it, that have nothing in common with each other. I would much see it divided differently. I think that's my comment at this point. Um, the, the east part of that district, Perry 7, Perry 15, Perry 16, is much more in common with the Bryant Park area, or even Perry 8 and Perry 32, than it does Perry 1 or anything north of 3rd Street. Having lived in that area, specifically Perry 15, um, and I'm I think that that's a real problem with this map. Next, the commissioners discussed Public Map 4, which was submitted by local journalist Dave Askins. Commission Chair Alex Semchuk said he's concerned about the compactness of the proposed map. Commissioner Kathleen Field said she agreed. I mean, I, def- I definitely have some concerns about the compactness of Map 4, especially as it relates to, um, I believe, District 1, uh, whatever, or whatever the light blue Because, I mean, we're, we were just talking about not crossing 3rd Street, but that's exactly what that does in light blue. So I, I definitely do have a problem with that. Um. I, I tend to think that, like, that area to the side of whatever road this is or line that is. At the town line. Is just kind of weird no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. So. And it's the only district on Map 4 that actually crosses 3rd Street. Mm-hmm. No. Staff liaison Stephen Lucas said there isn't an exact standard for compactness and that the statute says districts should be, quote, reasonably compact, end quote. The Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission will continue the discussion at its next meeting at 7.30 p.m. on August 31st. Commissioners said they hope to finalize and adopt the redrawn city council districts at their meeting on September 7th. At the Bloomington Community Advisory on Public Safety meeting on August 22nd, the commission discussed a resolution for the city council in response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Commissioner Nagela Routsong asked what the resolution would cover. Commissioner Shelby Ford responded saying it would inform the city of Bloomington what the council can do through legislative action. Yeah, so um, the way I have kind of just like our background information, what we're making statements about. So um, other than the state and federal law, we're asking that city funds not be used to work catalog report in, of any abortion miscarriage aside from the law um, or another criminal investigation. Um, and then also with that, we're asking that, uh, we, so basically we're asking not to collect that information unless it's a part of a criminal investigation enforcement prosecution. 
Um, and then the lower, this is something really similar to other cities where we're asking for low priority when it comes to criminalization and prosecution. Um, we know we cannot do that. So this is why we're asking uh, that they sign on to something similar, recognizing what they can do, the city can do, um, and where they can advocate for these changes to be made. And then our second part is the bigger part. Uh, it's the part that has like the budgeting. Um, so Planned Parenthood and all options is who we recommend, but also other stakeholders if the city were to decide differently, because um, we're asking the city to figure out those aspects, you know, but we, we recommend at least uh, $75,000. Commissioner Renee Miller explained that the legislation will become important as the state starts to prosecute women for having abortions. At this time, and this will change come January, mm -hmm. at this time, a person with a vaginal canal mm -hmm. will not be prosecuted if they seek an abortion in the state of Indiana between September 15th mm -hmm. and the end of the year. We anticipate that changing come January because they've got a whole slew of things they're going to throw at this to make it more difficult for anyone with a vaginal canal to, to be able to, uh, or to legislate against people having any bodily autonomy. The next Community Advisory on Public Safety meeting will be held on October 24th. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Nick Voiles, the Executive Director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, about addiction and recovery and how to confront the stigmas associated with them. We turn now to that interview. Well, Nick Voiles, Executive Director for the Indiana Recovery Alliance, welcome to the WFHB Local News. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you for being here. So first off, Nick, would you tell me a little bit about the Indiana Recovery Alliance and the kind of work you do? We uh, operate under the philosophy of harm reduction to educate the community to promote the health and dignity of the individuals and communities impacted by drug use here in Monroe County and across the state. Respectfully collaborate with people to assist in any positive change as a person defines it for themselves, beginning where the person is at. No biases or condemnations for the person's chosen lifestyle. Our efforts advance policies, practices, and programs that address the adverse effects of drug use. We overdose, HIV, Hep C, substance use disorder, and incarceration. So within the confines of that statement, we also operate a full-service, needs-based, friend-service program in Monroe County in collusion with the uh, Monroe County Health Department. We're open seven days a week. We never close. Next, we haven't closed our doors for three years since I've been here. Wow. Well, thank you for walking me through that and kind of, you know, what you guys are all about, sort of your, your core mission and, and a little bit about your day-to-day. -day. So your website says the key to keeping people who use drugs meaningfully connected in their communities 
with access to disease prevention and health services and to reduce recidivism rates is to treat every person, regardless of their circumstance or condition, with dignity and respect. Would you talk about that element of treating people with respect and why that's important to you? I'd be happy to. You know, people who use drugs are live in a constant state of stigma and shame. And uh, there's not too many places they feel safe or can be safe at. What we do at the Indian Recovery Alliance is we offer them a place to have a little bit of love and a little bit of dignity. So a person comes in and, you know, they come to get our services and maybe they've had a horrible day. Maybe the world's just, you know, laid one on them. They know that when they come there for one small moment, you know, they get dignity, love, and respect. That might be in the form of a hug. That might be in the form of a cup of water and some kind words. You know, and we working there have to think that with this current global pandemic that we're under, that we might not see that person again. That this might be the last point or the last place they receive the love and dignity that they so deserve from anyone. It's been a point of pride, you know, coming from lived experience uh, in drug use in my own life. I feel like for once I can give back a little love that they so deserve. You know, people who use drugs are vibrant, beautiful people. You know, the, the caricature of a person who uses drugs as a failed human being just doesn't make any sense anymore. You know, now that the veil has been lifted in certain spots. So, you know, I feel like it's my job when that person comes in to uh, operate under a term we call radical love. You know, accepting that they are who they are and that they're beautiful just who they are and that I can love on them and treat them well for the little time that they may be in. Wow, I, I really love that. And you touched on a, a really interesting point, Nick, that there's certainly a stigma when it comes to substance abuse, right? Labeling, stereotyping, and discrimination. Overall, there's the sense of judgment for people going through these complex challenges. So how does the work that you do push back against that stigma? Yeah, I think by the very act of us being here pushes back against that stigma. But how we do it as an organization is when you walk into our place, it looks like a living room. You know, no person, regardless of who or what stage of their use or of their chaotic living conditions, is treated any different from the other. We try to work with people to, to change those broken narratives, you know, to disrupt them and to uh, reinvigorate them with empowerment, you know. Uh, I think one of our key points is, you know, sometimes when we do policy, we take people with us to legislation. We, we offer people who use drugs payment for services that they render, you know, through a, through a uh, thing we call low threshold employment. And I think that the idea of demolishing stigma has to come with from the uh, community as a whole. And we can show by by what we do, services we offer, and the environment we provide, that this can be done and that the outcomes are positive. Yeah, most definitely. I really appreciate, you know, you you touching on that. I think this is a very important issue. And, um, you know, speaking of that stigma or you know, recent developments when it comes to substance abuse. 
The opioid epidemic has been a topic of conversation as of late, and it really has made an impact on families and communities, frankly, across the country. Have you seen this opioid crisis firsthand given the kinds of work you're involved in? Absolutely. We always joke about doing what should be a global health response uh, in a nonprofit system and budget. The idea is that, like, the opioid overdose crisis has touched every single facet of American life. You know, it is the number, I mean, it's over our heart disease as the number one accidental death in the United States. And I think saying has it touched us, yes, I mean, absolutely. What's even worse about it, what's more insidious than all of that, is that the drug users almost blame for it, you know? And we live in a society that doesn't allow a drug user any sort of evidence-based practices or very little evidence-based practices in order with which to find a positive outcome. They can either go to abstinence-based recovery or if their area has some harm reduction services, maybe they might be able to go to those. You know, harm reduction looks different in other places. I know for us, you know, like we talk about the idea of how can we remove stigma internally? Because the problem is, is people take this outward stigma, it comes in and they internalize it and then reflect it back on the society and on the other people that use drugs. You know, I think that people use drugs are the worst to each other. You know, we definitely uh, stand as being one of the, we need to re-change that way that we uh, deal with, with drug use in America. There is now evidence-based solutions to these problems. They're, in, they're not the best, but they save lives, and they're better than the solutions we're using now. We have safe consumption sites. We can lift methadone restrictions. And these things would offer uh, vital tools to keep people alive. You're listening to an interview with Executive Director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, Nick Voyles, about addiction and recovery and how to confront the stigmas associated with them. Now, back to the conversation. Most definitely. Um, Thank you again for walking me through that. Um, So I I read on your website, and this is sort of, you know, on on a similar path of conversation, I read on your website that exchanging syringes is a very small part of what you are doing, um, but would you talk about that program and sort of why you believe that's important as well? Sure. Here's the thing. Like, you know, we, we bandy about talking about syringe exchange. We call it a syringe program. The most evidence-based type of syringe service program that has CDC's best practices to it is called needs-based. Uh, the reason we use this is that each person who's using an intravenous, uh, intravenous drug should have one, they should have a syringe, a brand new syringe for every single use. You know, the syringe service program is there to offer people a way to stay alive, period. They receive Narcan, the uh, life-saving uh, opioid reversal drug, from 
just till January to now, we've had over 2,000 reversed opioid, possible fatal opioid overdose episodes just from January to now. We just did numbers a bit ago. You know, when we talk about what a syringe service program does, it's a lot more than just handing out syringe. You know, that's kind of like the the way people, a uh, commodity we offer that gets people to the table. You know, then once at the table, you know, certain service programs, people who attend them are five times likelier to enter into some form of recovery than people who don't. But at the end of the day, whether it's syringes, whether it's life-saving guardian, whether it's dignity, love, and respect, all we're trying to do is keep our people alive. You know, until those people can then serve better outcomes. The motivation has to be internalized. You have to want to do these things. These, these treatment centers we have where we're being coerced in, either through a, a, you know, familial coercion or through legal coercion, they are shown to be you know, very ineffective. Where life-saving interventions like medication treatment, you know, other harm reduction tactics have shown like you know, amazing, amazing evidence. Just they're much more ethical uh, than traditional uh, abstinence-based recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for for walking me through that. It sounds like you guys have a pretty wide range of resources you offer. So I, I want to ask you about that. What are some resources that you can share with me that you offer? Now, I know the list of resources you provide on your website are quite exhaustive. So where can people find out more information about the broad range of services you offer at the Indiana Recovery Alliance? Well, of course, our website or Facebook. We also have some Instagram and TikToks that we put out. But more, come in and see us. Come in and talk with us. Uh, our resources stem, you know, are, are vastly more than, than what are even stated on our website or on our Facebook. You know, we can get people liaised to Hep C uh, or HIV care. You know, we could, sometimes what we do is help with housing. Sometimes we just, like, we just recently did a tent drive. You know, sometimes it's it's tabling at a, a pride fest to show our solidarity. You know, like, there are, if they want to reach more resources, the best and easiest way is come have a conversation. I believe that connection is the key and that uh, you know, having that connection to somebody in our production can really make a difference in their life if, if they want to learn more about it, if they want to like, you know, see what these crazy guys at the IRA are doing, then yeah, that's what I suggest. Absolutely. That face-to-face connection is, is so important. Now, Nick, these are all the questions I have prepared for you, but I want to give you the floor, give you the last word. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we part ways? Yeah, a couple things. One, the idea of what harm reduction really provides besides the services. You touched on it when you talked about a question. Like We need to reshift the blame off the drug user and onto the systemic problems that have caused this. You know, the, the war on drugs is a war on humans. It was created and born out of racism. We need to be, be aware of that. You know, and we need to seek to, to stop these draconian policies we have that lock people up 
for a substance they put in their body, but not for another substance they can happily put in their body. Somebody early on told me that, you know, uh, a pub or a, uh, a bar is a safe consumption site because it's where people can safely consume alcohol and then go home. Uh, we could use a lot more of that. We might be able to save some lives. The other thing I want to add is, is that at the end of the day, so I said this in the beginning, and, and really this is what we're trying to do, is we want to give power back to the drug user. We want to enable this each person who's in substance use and having substance use issues to feel empowered in his own recovery, to feel empowered to make positive changes that you know may not look real, real shiny to some people, but we've seen the evidence. You know, the science is behind harm reduction. And uh, hopefully, both politically and, uh, you know, through community-based organizations, we can change the landscape of of how we treat drug users. You know, that drug user might be someone's mother, brother, son, daughter. That we all deserve just a little bit of uh, respect and a whole lot of radical love. Well, I love that. Nick Voiles, Executive Director for the Indiana Recovery Alliance, Thank you again for coming on to the WFHB Local News. Absolutely. Listen, thanks for having me, and uh, it's been a pleasure. And remember to stop and see us at Indian Recovery Lines. We'd love to get to know you. That was an interview with Executive Director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, Nick Voiles. To learn more about the Indiana Recovery Alliance, visit indianarecoveryalliance.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and The Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Ruth Flegman. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 